it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, uh, Dr. Janavi Athali. Uh, Janavi is, there's a, there are a fair amount of uh, board questions and things you need to know about heme and emergencies in the ICU, and there's nobody better qualified to, to give this talk and, and answer these questions than Janavi. Uh, Janavi, I have the great pleasure of knowing her. She was a fellow in our department here uh, at NIH. Uh, and she did her in critical care, and then she did her heme and onc uh, fellowships at Johns Hopkins as, after she completed her internal medicine residency at Hopkins. Uh, we we tried to keep her in the area, but she really wanted to go out toward the west, so she's at Mayo Clinic uh, Phoenix right now, um, and she's an excellent clinician and uh, an even better person. And she's always enjoyed doing talks. So we invited her to give this talk about heme and onc emergencies. So with that, I'll give it to you, Janavi. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much, as always, um, for your all too much kindness to me. <laughs> um, thank you guys for being here. Uh, let me just see if I can click through here. Okay, so I put in a objective slide, we'll go over some common ICU-associated hemologic and oncologic emergencies. Um, I have no disclosures. Um, there are some non-FDA uh, indications for medications that I'll review accordingly. Um, in addition, I should have actually probably put this on the disclosure side. Some of these questions are old chest seat questions that I've borrowed and updated. Um, so these are sort of the topics that we're going to try to cover. I mean, it's an hour and we'll try to go over some of these. Um, I'll keep, I'll keep a close eye on my watch. If it looks like we're not going to be able to get to some of these, I'm happy to pause. And if there are particular topics that you would like to hear more about, um, we can pause and go to them. It's going to be mostly interactive question and answer format. Um, I won't call on anyone, but you're welcome to volunteer answers if you'd like. Um, so we'll start with a case. Uh, let me just move this screen over so I can read the case. Um, okay, so this is a 74-year-old patient uh, with diabetes, hypertension, chronic AFib, on dabigatran, who's admitted to the ICU with abdominal sepsis. His white count is 23,000, left shifted, an AKI presumed with a creatinine of 2.1, a lactate of 2.6, normal LFTs. Uh, the CT scan shows some nonspecific thickening of the duodenum with some fat stranding. Uh, the patient is scheduled for an EGD tomorrow. Uh, unfortunately, the patient deteriorates overnight. Um, his abdominal exam is worse. He has some guarding. White count's a little bit higher. Um, creatinine's up to 2.5, chest x-ray now with pneumoperitoneum, and GenSur just consulted for an X-lab. It's been 18 hours since the patient's last dose of dabigatran. Um, so I'll pause for a second. Which lab tests do you think would be most suggestive in, uh, of ongoing dabigatran effect? Um, feel free to put it in the chat if you'd like. If not, I'll just let you think about it for a second and I'll go on to the answer. Or you can interrupt, of course, at any time. Okay, so just a quick reminder that dabigatran is one of the only oral direct thrombin inhibitors. Oh, I see an answer. Yeah, very good. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. So what you're going to see is a prolonged thrombin time. Um, you generally shouldn't see much prolongation of your INR and APT, T. At higher doses, you will, and the anti-TNA really shouldn't be affected much. Um, so your thrombin time is a good marker to check. Um, I can remember this case when I was a resident, 
where someone came in with altered mental status, needed an LP, had been on anticoagulation at home. And so really before you do the LP, it might be reasonable in addition to checking your INR ABTT to check a thrombin time and really an anti-10A these days to make sure that they're not on any of the newer drugs um, that could be out. Um, and so an INR and an ABTT are not the only tests you should check these days. So moving on to part B of the question, what is the most appropriate treatment to reduce the risk of serious bleeding during surgery? Any thoughts? So reversal for uh, divigatran, you typically use a prax bind or a monoclonal antibody called idarosizumab. So A is the correct answer here. Um, PCC would be a reasonable option pre-idarosizumab, but um, generally that's what we would use um, these days. So after surgery and idarosizumab, the patient continues to bleed. After careful consideration, he receives a second dose. His thrombin time, however, remains prolonged. What is the next best step? I'll pause again for a second. Um, and this is one of those questions where it says next best step, right? Um, I think you could accept a couple of options here. Yeah, very good. Um, so dabigatran, is one of the uh, drugs that you could dialyze off. So dialysis would be the right answer. Um, so this is kind of a cheat sheet table um, that I think would be helpful to look at. So dabigatran, um, you can see slightly prolonged PTT because of thrombin inhibition, but really that's not a great marker, so you should check a thrombin time. The antidote, as we talked about, is praxfine or idorosizumab. It's a monoclonal antibody, so you can you know, rarely expect some of the side effects of any kind of monoclonal antibody infusion. And you have alternative treatments, including a four-factor PCC, uh, activated factor seven or Novo seven, uh, TXA, and really hemodialysis. It's one of the only ones that you could dialyze off. Um, for the drugs that have XA in their name, so the NOACs that are 10A inhibitors, so rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban, you now have an indexinate alpha, which is a decoy, and I'll talk about it in the next slide, but you have alternative treatments as well. So if you're at a, a hospital or a facility where you don't have easy access to that. Um, indexinate alpha, just to clarify, unlike map, is dosed based on when the, your last drug was taken. You either do a low dose or a high dose bolus followed by an infusion. Um, the difficult thing about indexinate alpha is that unlike map, it's not a very clean decoy or a uh, clean treatment. Um, so the incidence of thrombosis in the initial trial was 10%, and in post-hoc analysis, you can see over uh, around 18% overall thrombotic rates. Uh, so people are hesitant to use indexinate alpha. I think it's a great drug. If you have someone with intracranial hemorrhage or a serious bleed, you should absolutely use it. You should just be aware that there is a higher rate of thrombosis. So just something to be mindful of. Um, I'm going to move on to talk about factor replacements. Any questions about the DOAX, NOAX, or reversal? Um, okay, I'll keep occasionally looking through the chat. Um, so if you if I don't see you, just raise your hand or please interrupt. So I'll briefly talk about factor replacement products and the most common ones that are available. So when you think of PCC, most of us think of the four-factor PCC K-Centra, but I'll briefly go over the three-factor and the activated factor seven PCC products. Um, you know, it's rare for us actively in the ICU to be dosing hemophilia and von Willebrand disease factors, but I'll just briefly present them to you and talk briefly, very briefly about activated factor seven. 
So Novo 7 was originally developed for hemophilia patients with antibodies. Um, it has, these are its FDA approved indications. Um, as you guys are well aware, <laughs> over 97%, and I would argue even more these days, uh, use of activated factor 7 is not for its FDA approved indications. Uh, so we use it often in patients that have serious bleeding um, or coagulopathy. Um, I'm not going to go over the Cochrane review data for the incidence of thrombosis, but as you can imagine, because it's an activated factor, it has very high rates of thrombosis when used inappropriately. Um, but in someone who is bleeding out, I think it's a risk-benefit analysis. Um, the other replacement products that I'll briefly talk about, just so you're aware, is that for hemophiliacs, you have several products available, and each hospital generally carries about just one or maybe two, maybe just has a recombinant product or the plasma derived. Uh, certain patients can't tolerate the recombinant products. Um, and so it's important to know most hemophiliacs um, that have severe hemophilia walk around with cards. So they'll tell you what to give them, what to dose them, what they can't take, if they have inhibitors. Um, so if you ask, they're generally pretty savvy or their family is. Um, but we have several products available um, and so really it's a hematologic issue, but just so you're aware that you can't sort of uh, sometimes replace products without knowing. Um, factor 13 is hard. Most hospitals don't carry that, but you can ask for it. And the factor 11 is really not available in this country. So we generally give patients with factor 11 uh, deficiency, just FFP. Um, and then bundle brand factors, we have several of those available, some with longer half-lives. So again, just knowing when in doubt, just give cryo if you don't know what they normally take. Um, any questions about factor replacement before we go on to PCC? Okay, so PCC, the most common PCC that we think about is four-factor PCC, Kcentra, but you do have three-factor PCC. Um, so the three-factor PCC has two, nine, and 10, doesn't have seven. Um, I'll talk about why you might use it in some situations. Uh, a lot of studies have looked at fixed dosing versus weight-based dosing, and it's uh, fixed dosing is not inferior. Um, I'm generally stingy, so I'll just use up the vial size. Um, you can either round up or round down, depending on what you think your patient needs. Um, just so you're, the incidence of thrombosis with PCC, not activated PCC, is pretty low, 1% to 2%. The three-factor PCC is called Profile 9. Um, it's great for patients that have HIT because it is not, it does not contain heparin. So that's one reason why you might use it. Um, so activated PCC, um, we don't use it as commonly except in hemophiliacs with inhibitor. Uh, the most common commercial product for that is FIBA. Um, and it's sort of in its acronym, it tells you that it's for factor eight inhibitor bypassing activity. So hemophilia A with inhibitor. Um, but if you're ever thinking about combining PCC with Novo7, uh, sometimes rather than combining the two and trying to figure out the cumulative incidence of thrombosis, um, I would use, or I could consider using FIBA. Um, that's about all I have about factors. I have another question on NOACs, but I'll keep going unless there are any questions. Okay, I'll read the next stem. Um, sorry that they're rather long, but uh, so this second case is on a 58-year-old man who has hypertension, uh, BPH, he's homozygous for factor five widen. He was discharged five months ago after a PE on a Pixaban. He came back to the ED uh, with two days of melanoma and a day of lightheadedness and confusion. In the ED, he's hypotensive, tachycardic, um, 
looks like he's in bed and he's oriented to person only. His abdomen is soft, non-distended, non-tender. His extremities are cold with some modeling. Uh, you sent a type and cross, you gave him some fluids, some blood. Um, and then he's later, he's requiring four units of PRBCs um, and 40 milligrams of IV PPI uh, without improvement in his blood pressure. So his hemoglobin is now 8.4, platelets 106, creatinine 1.6, lactate up to 3.4. Um, you can see his APTT and INR um, not really out yet, and the thrombin time is normal. He's admitted to the ICU. In addition to preparing for endoscopy, what additional treatment could you use um, for this patient? So just a quick reminder, he's on a Pixaban. And again, I don't think that any of the, some of, there might be more than one correct answer here, but any thoughts? So like we talked about, you reverse a Pixaban with Endexinet Alpha. Um, oh, great, good job, guys. Um, Endexinet Alpha is expensive. And in addition, um, because of the rate of thrombosis, I think PCC in this patient who is relatively stable, relative being key, um, I think a four-factor PCC would be a reasonable option. Um, you could also argue that just giving him some FFP and platelets would help as well. Um, any questions? Okay. I'm gonna move on to the next case. So this is a 56 year old gentleman, uh, transferred to the ICU after a motor vehicle accident, um, he underwent an x lap he had some aortic cross clamping, cross clamping, had a splenectomy, packing of a grade four liver lack, he had a chest tube for a right pneumothorax, reduction in X-fix of bilateral displaced femur fractures, his EVL is about five liters, he's gotten 10 units of blood, six of FFP, one dose of pooled platelets, and calcium gluconate and ICU, he's sedated, he's paralyzed, uh, still hypotensive on norepi, slightly tachycardic and 92%. His bilateral course breath sound, he has a brisk chest tube leak. Um, the abdomen is open uh, with saturated dressing and, and he's oozing from his multiple X-fix sites. So his hemoglobin 6.7, INR is up to 2.2, potassium is 5.6, iCal is 1.15 millimoles, and then lactate is 5.1. So a massive transfusion protocol is initiated and after one cooler, so coolers are different across different institutions and in different institutions, a medical cooler versus a trauma cooler, as you guys know, can be very different. But here, the one cooler equated to four units of blood, four of FFP, one pack of cool platelets and calcium was given as well. He's having ongoing oozing and a tag has been sent. Um, so, I know that at Maryland, you guys use Rotem more than TAG, is that right? But here is the TAG and it's giving you the reference points. So the R time, the K time, the alpha angle, the max amplitude and the lysis. Um, I'll sort of help you out for the next question. So it's asking what is the next best step in management? Um, this is what a normal TAG and TAGs that are out would look like. Okay, so I'll show you the answer choices again. I can go back if you'd like, any thoughts? Okay, so I actually think cryo would be a great option here, but FFP is also, yeah, I would say you're exactly right, um, Alex. Um, the max amplitude is also low, so platelets would also be reasonable, but the first thing that I would correct um, is FFP, because you don't have factors here to really stabilize or make a clot. 
Um, and that's what Teg and Rotem are, right? They're functional analysis of clot formation. And so, yeah, I would agree. I'd probably give this patient platelets as well, but FFP would be a good start. Um, this is sort of what the features of a tech are, and this is helpful, and I think we're going to give you this PowerPoint so you can review this at a later time, but I think the most um, helpful thing to me is uh, on Rebel EM, they have this very nice picture um, that helps you break down what the RK, the alpha angle, and the max amplitude are really looking at and what you should treat with. Um, the residents last week taught me this acronym, so I, I don't know if it's helpful, but I'll, I'll let you know and share with you. So it's fried chicken, please, thank you. Um, that's sort of how they've been remembering what to replace. Um, and techs, you know, have been really validated in liver transplants to a certain degree in patients with cirrhosis and trauma. Um, you can use them. Uh, tags and rotems in other contexts, but um, you know they're not a complete picture of a patient's ability to clot or not clot, but they are a helpful marker. Um, so I'm going to move on to the next question, unless you guys have questions on tags. I'm less familiar with rotems, but I can try. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on. So is the speed okay? Is it too fast? Okay, hearing no complaints, I'm going to keep going. Um, so this next case is on a 67-year-old woman who has hypertension, diabetes, end-stage renal disease, um, gets dialyzed on Monday, Wednesday, Friday through a right IJ catheter. She had a, a generalized tonic client seizure at home. When EMS arrived, she was minimally responsive. Her glucose was 35. She got an amp of D50. Um, through her dialysis catheter. In the ED, the patient is post-ictal, and CT head now shows small right frontal subdurals. Her blood pressure is elevated. She was given two doses of IV labetalol. She started on a cardine drip, and she's admitted to the ICU with a GCS of 10. Her labs are notable for sodium of 139, potassium 5.6, chloride 101, bicarb 12, UN 42, creatinine 4.5. Her glucose is now up to 322. I've included her CK, her lactate, her white count, hemoglobin, and platelets. So on admission to the ICU, the patient is now oozing from many sites and has abrasions on her leg. This prompts COAG testing, which demonstrates an APTT greater than 212, an INR of 10.8, a fibrinogen of 412, uh, fibrin degradation products, split products, um, different institutions call them different things, soluble fibrin monomers, they're low. Uh, so not suggestive of a DIC, but the thrombin time is out at 42. So what treatment should be administered? I'll pause for a second. Any thoughts, guys? And I can go back as well if that's helpful. Uh, so this one's a little bit of a complicated story, right? Why would this patient develop? Um, a, a is a good option. B is a good option. Um, but actually, the answer here, strangely, is D, um, and I'll share with you why. So I hate to make you guys go back to the COAC pathway. I know it gives everyone nightmares, but um, so remember the AT APTT measures the activated clotting pathway, and the PT measures the tissue factor clotting pathway, right? Um, and both, yeah, very good, Alex. She did get a bolus of heparin in her HD catheter. That's exactly what happened. So. Um, What's interesting here is that her 
um, her COAC factors are out in a very abnormal way. They're very much out. And when that happens, you really have to start first thinking about drug effect because um, it's very hard to get your APTT to this level. And so what ends up happening is dialysis catheters are locked with heparin. And depending on what dose of heparin you use or what concentrations, you can have heparin 1,000 units per mil, or you can have 10,000 units per mil. If you have a high concentration of heparin, which is what sometimes in dialysis they're locked with, you're injecting almost bypass doses of heparin, right? Um, I'm sorry, I think this looks a little bit blurry, but it's sort of helpful to look and see um, what's out. So yeah, that's exactly what happened. So the EMS didn't withdraw what was dwelling in the catheter and push the D50 through that. Um, any questions on that case? Okay, hearing none, I'll keep going. So case five, this is a previously healthy 46-year-old man who's transferred from a rural facility with septic shock, hepatic failure. He's on Bank, Merim, Levofloxacin, and doxycycline. He's lethargic, but oriented. The remainder of the neurologic exam is intact. He's febrile, hypo, uh, 101 over 65 on norepi, 105, breathing 20s. Uh, it didn't include uh, SAT. Sorry about that. Lungs, in, uh, lungs are clear. Cardiac exam is normal. Um, his spleen is moderately enlarged, no hepatomegaly. His lower extremity TKA. Blood cultures and rickettsial cultures are negative from the outside hospital. Um, He's leukopenic with a white count of 1.5, anemic and thrombocytopenic. His fibrinogen is low at 80 and his peripheral blood thick smear is negative. He has AST, ALT and Billy elevation with elevation of his triglycerides. Uh, he has an AKI with creatinine of 3.3 and his ferritin is up to 5,186. His soluble IL-2 receptor or his CD25 is elevated and his EBV PCR is elevated as well. His bone marrow biopsy is consistent with an NKT cell lymphoma. In addition to his lymphoma, these findings are most consistent with which other condition? So I think in general, residencies and fellows are much more familiar, right, with HLH than I was when I was a resident. So exactly, so he's HLH. And just a quick reminder, HLH is just a clinical syndrome, just like sepsis, ARDS. It's really not a disease, especially when it's secondary HLH or acquired HLH. So your goal is always to try to treat the underlying driver. Um, so moving on to that, that was a hint for this question. What is the next best step in treatment? So um, yes. Um, yeah, those are all good options. So I would say the answer, the correct answer is C. Um, when in doubt, you want to treat the underlying driver, right? So that's going to be your best way to treat the to treat what's causing it. It's either driven generally by infection, malignancy, or potentially an autoimmune condition. Now, if they're critically ill and you can't figure out their driver, then it's reasonable to temporize them. Um, and about 10% of secondary HLH, and I, I would say even higher, you're not able to identify the driver. So we do end up treating them on our HLH 2004 or 94 regimen, which is steroids and topicide. Um, there is some good data. There are some good data for tocilizumab and even for targeted T cells, if you think that that's what's driving it. But Again, the goal is to always treat the driver. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm gonna move on to the next question. Uh, just a quick reminder for the HLH diagnostic criteria. Remember again, I said this was a clinical syndrome. So primary HLH is genetic HLH. Um, some people argue that even secondary HLH, some of the patients are heterozygous for some of these mutations in the perforin genes, but 
um, I think that's way more detailed than us as intensivists normally need to do. And really, it's fulfilling the criteria. Um, my worry becomes sometimes people get so focused on trying to fulfill the criteria that they forget about treating the underlying driver. But you need to meet five of the eight criteria. Can I ask a question about this? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when are you sending these labs? When are you suspecting this in like a super sick septic patient? Because we don't usually send this on all of our super sick septic patients. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because, you know, sepsis by itself is going to call pancytopenia, elevated ferritin elevations, and the ferritin cutoff for HLH is greater than 500. A lot of people have argued that in the ICU, we should use a higher cutoff for HLH, maybe 10,000. So I'm not routinely sending these labs on all patients, but in patients that um, are critically ill and getting worse and worsening multi-organ failure despite interventions, where you do start to see some trends of like, worsening DIC or lower fibrinogen, rising triglycerides, I may send these labs. But again, if I know that the driver is sepsis um, and I don't suspect anything else underlying, I generally will just treat the underlying driver. Um, now, there is some data that in septic patients who have HLH, you can use temporizing measures like IVIG and higher doses of steroids to sort of quell the immune response, because again, the thought process is it's not at this point, it's not so much the infection that's driving it, it's the immune response. Um, but you know, that's a great question. I can't tell you that there's like an absolute time that I start worrying about this, but if the patient's getting clinically worse and I feel like we're treating the infection adequately, but things are still worse, I guess I would send them. As you guys know, the soluble IL-2 receptor alpha is generally, it can be in send out tests at a lot of institutions and the NK cell activity, which is different than NK cell flow, um, is almost always a send out test because it's a radioisotope label. Um, that you're looking at to see how the NK cells are actually working, not the number of NK cells. So some of these are hard um, to get, but yeah, that's what I would say. Did I sort of answer your question? Yeah, I know. I know it would be like different per provider, but thanks. I just like to hear what you guys do in your practice. Yeah. I, yeah. I would say that in general, like try not, people have historically, there was a phase where people were trying to all have patients meet the criteria and focus on trying to diagnose the disease rather than treat the driver. So I would say that if you're worried, go for it. Check it. Probably okay. Maybe a responsible use of resources, but probably okay to check. But generally, just treat what you think is happening. Um, okay. So moving on to the next case. So this is a 62-year-old man who's received therapy with axacaptogene cellulocell. Um, I think they do this on purpose. They make the names so complicated generically that we're all forced to use the brand name. So Yaskarda, which is a CAR-T product for his refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, he was initially diagnosed six months ago, had progression of his lymphoma while receiving standard chemotherapy. He got second-line chemo, but only had stable disease. So he got treated with CAR-T cell therapy shortly after infusion of the medications. And that's not very common. Generally, this takes time, but... Um, in this case, the patient developed significant flu-like symptoms. He acutely clinically deteriorated, developed cardiac dysfunction, and ARDS. What is the next best therapy? Okay. Um, yeah, so A, very good. Um, tocilizumab. That's exactly right. So it's an IL-6 receptor antibody, and that's what we generally use in CRS, and I'll show you the um, slides in the criteria in the next, uh, I'll show you the criteria in the next couple of slides. So moving on to part B for this question, 
the patient in the prior scenario had improvement in his respiratory status and cardiac dysfunction. Unfortunately, he's now somnolent, has worsening neurological status, and is intubated. He undergoes a CT scan, which is read as concerning for cerebral edema. So what is the best next step now? Um, yep, very good. High-dose steroids, very good. Um, so these are sort of each institution, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way, um, your BMT group or your cellular transplant group, all of them have their own criteria for how they define CRS and what they would like to treat. Now, over the years, we've standardized those criteria. So the AST, CTC, which is the group that sort of um, manages cellular therapy, they've created standard criteria for what grade one, grade two, and grade three are. Um, this has changed, especially with the pandemic, but even at grade two CRS, which was mild hypotension that's fluid responsive, it was recommended that these patients um, are considered for ICU admission. Obviously these days it's more grade three when they actually need pressors that they move to the ICU. But around grade two, you should be, um, most institutions will consider treatment with the IL-6 receptor antibody, tocilizumab, or the IL-6 antibody, siltuximab. Um, so once you're moving into higher grades, um, you are doing more aggressive therapy, including steroids and additional adjuncts. Um, ICANs, we grade differently than CRS, um, mostly because we believe that the antibodies might not have great CNS penetration or effects. And so that's why uh, immune cell associated neurological symptoms, we grade very differently. So the grading is depending on this ICE score or CARTOX scale that the nurses in these BMT units are actually doing every day. Um, and when you move on to grade of two, where ICE score is lower and there's consideration for worsening levels of consciousness, we start steroids pretty early because the outcomes can be so poor with worsening neurological toxicity. Um, this is sort of all I'm going to say about CAR T cells. So any questions on anything I've said so far on CAR T or HLH? Okay, hearing none, I'm gonna move on. So this next case is an 82-year-old who has peptic ulcer disease, diastolic heart failure, osteoporosis, who came into the ICU following an orif of a right proximal femur fracture. He developed new onset AFib following surgery and was treated with metoprolol and unfractionated heparin. Two days later, he has a wound hematoma, which has remained stable after a brief pause in his anticoagulation. He's also suffered from slowly resolving delirium and was treated for possible HCAP with Zosin and Bink until recent antibiotic de-escalation. Today, the patient is disoriented, afebrile, hemodynamically stable. His current medications include Seroquel, Metoprolol, Heparin, Omeprazole, Lasix, and Levofloxacin. His physical exam is notable for irregular rhythm, few scattered right uh, lower, lower crackles, and a stable right leg swelling. There's swelling, ecchymosis, and serosanguinous drainage from the right thigh wound with a focal area of erythema and tenderness. His white counts 12, hemoglobin 8.7, platelets are down to 56, creatinine 2.1, and normal LFTs. His ELISA for antiplatelet factor 4 heparin antibodies is positive, so the confirmatory test is ending. In addition to discontinuing heparin, what is the most appropriate treatment at this time? Um, okay, yeah, very good. Yeah, ergatroban is the right answer. So Fonda and rivaroxaban are actually reasonable answers. However, in this situation, they would not be reasonable answers. Can you guys think of why? 
Um, so they're generally renally dosed. So with the AKI in someone 80 with bleeding and with, uh, yep, very good. Yes, AKI, <laughs> very good. So um, this is sort of the HIT algorithm. We're all notoriously bad, and I am guilty of this as well, despite being a hematologist, so I, I do not judge. Um, but, you know, step one really should be your um, pretest probabilities. So there are different scoring systems that you can use. Most of us use the 4T score, and you can argue about its efficacy in cardiac surgery patients versus other patients. But the 4T score is a reasonable screening tool. And so if you have a low pretest probability, you really should stop and not send your ELISA or do additional testing. Now, if you have intermediate or high pretest, we generally send the immunoassay, which is generally the ELISA test for the PF4 heparin, uh, platelet factor for uh, heparin antibody testing. And then the functional assay is your serotonin release assay. And while you're here, you should really consider starting an alternative anticoagulant, which is why you know, if the suspicion is low, I try not to get here in the first place. Um, most of us use the MedCalc calculator. Um, it's pretty uh, okay. Um, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty objective, except when you get to this last point, other causes of thrombocytopenia. So you might say non-apparent. I would say he's on medications. He's had sepsis. So I pick possible. Someone else who's a little more aggressive might say, oh, there are definitely other causes. You can see that you could drop that to a point of three, which would make him low prob, depending on how subjective you are here. Um, and that's where the variability can come. Um, okay, so treatment of a hit, you can use bival. Um, bival, generally, if you have renal dysfunction, people worry about using, um, you can use it, it's half-life is just longer. It's about 25 minutes normally with renal dysfunction, it's longer. Argatroban, again, if you have hepatic dysfunction, you generally try to avoid, most institutions just have access to one, so it's fine to use, you just have to be careful. Bonda, you can use upfront. Um, I generally only use that in very stable patients and it's renally dosed. You can reverse Bonda if you really have to with Endeximet Alpha, which we talked about way back when we were talking about tenators. Again, given the risk of thrombosis, especially with HIT, I would be very cautious about doing that. Um, you, there's good data for using NOACs upfront in very stable patients, so you could do that. It makes me, again, a little more nervous because if they bleed with the low platelets on an OAC, um, I worry about how I'm going to reverse them. The only thing you can't, absolutely can't do is use Coumadin up front because you're going to drop their protein CNS first, um, and that's going to increase their risk of thrombosis and complications. Any questions about HIT before I move on to the next slide? Okay, I'll keep pushing through. Just going to take time here. Okay. So Casey, so this is a 19-year-old who develops fever, fatigue, shortness of breath, has newly enlarged lymph nodes in the neck, um, in the setting of headache, nasal congestion, ongoing fevers. The patient went to an urgent care, was given antibiotics and a steroid dose pack. Uh, the patient actually felt worse after that, came to the ED, was febrile, uh, normotensive, tachycardic, tachypnic. Um, an exam was notable for enlarged posterior cervical lymph nodes and hepatosplenomegaly. Labs are notable for a white count that's 110 with abnormal cells on the prelim read, hemoglobin of nine, platelets of 70, sodium 139, potassium 5.8, creatinine 2.1, UN 51, calcium 8, phosphate 7.4, uric acid 11.5. 
LDH 11,000, uh, one, sorry, 1,100. Um, patients initiated on normal saline, EKG shows mildly peak T waves. In addition to fluids, fast binders, what else did you start? Yeah, very good. So this patient should receive respiracase. Very good. Um, so this patient has tumor lysis, right? And it's probably because of the steroids that they got um, in the urgent care that led to lysis of these cells. So rapidly progressive tumor with high cell turnover is when you see tumor lysis. Um, and it, why is this a problem? You can have cardiac arrhythmias, seizures, um, and really the precipitation of uric acid uh, crystals with calcium phosph products can cause worsening renal injury, cause worsening uh, electrolyte abnormalities. So the abnormalities that you normally see, I know you guys are pretty familiar with this. I'm gonna go quickly, as you can see, hyperuricemia, you see hyperkalemia, and you can see pretty refractory hyperkalemia and high tumor burdens, um, where you might have to consider very aggressive renal replacement therapy. So back-to-back -back high um, dose IHG sessions, hyperphosphatemia and hypocalcemia. So the hypocalcemia, this is a subtlety of tumor lysis. So we try not to treat the hypocalcemia unless you're having arrhythmias or you're worried um, about like schwastics or trousseaus because um, unless they're symptomatic, you really try to not treat it because you're just going to cause more calcium phosphorus precipitation. Um, that's a subtlety. I mean, you don't, I don't know how many people follow that aggressively. Um, and just a quick reminder. So what case does, it's a recombinant enzyme that causes uric acid uh, to convert to allantoin. So birds, I don't know if, amphib I don't know if amphibians and reptiles do, but can do that. Um, so it's a, um, evolutionary thing that we as mammals and humans have lost. So um, it essentially converts uric acid to allantoin, which is water soluble and you can excrete. Um, you can get infusion reactions with case. It can lead to a hemolytic anemia. So those are some of the risks that you watch for. Any questions on tumor lysis before I go to the next question? Okay. Um, so case nine, so this is a 49-year-old man. He has no past medical history. He comes into an outside hospital with altered mental status, shortness of breath, febrile, tachycardic, tachypneic, 80, uh, O2 sats are 85% on rear mare. His labs at outside hospital are notable for a white count of almost 200,000. 90% of those cells are blast. He's anemic, thrombocytopenic, creatinine is 1.3. He underwent a P protocol CT, which was read as showing diffuse infiltrates, negative for PE. He's getting increasingly hypoxic. He's now high flow at 30 liters, 50%. What is the next best step in management? Um, this is, I guess, a cross-sectional view of the CT. Um, and these are your options. So I'll pause for a second. Should you give blood for the anemia, give Lasix, do both, replace an empiricis catheter, or do all of the above? or I guess, yeah, thoughts? Okay, um, so the correct answer is place an apheresis catheter. Um, this is what the smear could look like. These are blasts. You can see high uh, nucleus to cytoplasmic ratios or this lacy open chromatin. You can just look at the size of these cells. You can imagine how these cells would clog up all of your capillary beds. So including capillary beds in your kidneys, your heart, your lungs. These are all getting clotted with these blasts. Um, and so with the, the clinical syndrome that this patient has is leukostasis, right? So you can get hyperleukocytosis that leads to an increase in blood viscosity. That's not always necessary. And with viscosity testing is controversial, so I wouldn't rely on that. 
Um, and because these blasts are not easy to deform and they're large, they clog up your capillary beds. Uh, so people always ask this question, so what is the magic white count that you worry about? Um, that number doesn't exist, right? Um, this is a clinical syndrome, so it could be I have bereaved patients with white counts of 30. Um, so it really depends on what the patient is presenting with. In AML, it's generally a higher white count. You generally worry about monocytic or myelomonocytic, so monocytes are generally stickier types of AML. In ALL, you see it more commonly in T-cell. And again, as I mentioned, in ALL, you can see it at lower counts. Uh, CML, if they're in blast crisis, you can get into trouble. Really, what can also happen is these patients get um, very high platelet counts. You actually might end up doing platelet phoresis over leukophoresis. Um, and then in CLL, it's pretty rare, but of course, um, if you have CLL that's transformed or has issues, yes, of course it can happen. So any questions about leukostasis? So again, as I said, it's a clinical syndrome. Um, the patient is going to tell you that they have hyperleukostasis. So they're going to complain of headaches, confusions. Um, they're at high risk of bleeding or stroking. Um, hypoxia is one of the features. You can have renal dysfunction. Some of the features that you can actually would associate with sickle cell disease, for example, priapism, because of, again, clotting up of capillary beds, you can see. Um, and you can have some spurious lab counts because it's hard. Those blasts are sticky, so they're going to lice as you're drawing blood. So you can get into trouble there. When you're drying off of an A-line, for example, with the vamp, you can get into trouble there. So you actually might have to do a slow draw. Any questions on leukostasis before you go on to the next slide? Okay. Um, so the treatments are cytoreductive chemotherapy, leukophoresis. And you don't want to give these patients more blood or diurese them because you're actually going to make them stickier. So that makes sense. So unless you can start to phoresis them, and phoresis is, again, dependent on your hematocrit. So um, I'll, I'll avoid going into too much detail, but if possible, you want to try to avoid transfusing them. Now, obviously, if someone comes in with a hemoglobin of four and you're worried that the symptoms are more anemia than leukostasis, please give them the blood, give it slowly, try to run it slowly over four hours rather than quickly, but generally you wanna try not to give blood. Um, does that make sense? Okay, moving on to the next question. So this is a 32-year-old man, has hypertension, diabetes, CKD stage two, baseline creatinine of 1.5. I would think that that's a higher stage, but that's what they're reporting. Hep C that's been treated, cirrhosis, HIV with viral load undetectable, a CD4 or 204, and recent hospitalizations for seizures and gram-negative rod bacteremia. He came back to the hospital with altered mental status and thrombocytopenia. He's intubated and transferred to the ICU. Um, these are his labs. So uh, you can see he has an AKI, um, lactate's elevated, myotropic, myotropic elevated LFTs, platelets are down to 20, white count of 3.9. Okay. So um, what are your thoughts about this patient's platelet issues? Because thrombocytopenia in the ICU is like one of the most common things you see, right? How do you guys think about platelets? Um, I'll just share with you how I think about platelets when I come across thrombocytopenia. I start to worry if it's a production issue 
yeah, TTPH is very good. Yeah, that's probably the answer. But um, but I generally try to worry if it's a production issue, if the mayor is actually making platelets, if it's a sequestration issue, if they're hiding their platelets in their spleen or somewhere else, uh, rarely in the liver, or if it's a destruction consumption issue. So if they're bleeding out, if it's a trauma patient that's just using up their platelets to stick through everything they're bleeding to, or if the platelets are actually getting destroyed. fraction. I think of it as like the reticulocyte of the platelets. Um, if you don't have it, your lab generally prints out a platelet histogram. And again, as an intensivist, you shouldn't have to worry about trying to look this up, but you can't sort of figure out if the marrow is working. If there's a destruction consumption issue, especially if you're worried about destruction, it's super important and probably one of the only situations where as an intensivist, you need to look at the peripheral smear. If you're worried that they're sequestering, you can rely on your physical exam for splenomegaly, um, or you know, if the patient's habitus is not conducive to that, an ultrasound. So that's sort of how I think about it. And then generally, as is the case in the ICU, it's never clean, right? It's generally going to be low production, ongoing destruction, some consumption, and some sequestration. It's always going to be this combination issue, especially in your cirrhotics. Um, and then if that's the case, then I just think about what urgent interventions I need to do to prevent them from bleeding or clotting. So this is the smear. Anyone want to take a look at it? And uh, I guess one of you did, sorry, I'm pulling up the chat. I think Camille, you did, um, you were worried about TTP. And so that's exactly right. So on high power magnification, if you're seeing schistocytes, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but if you see these fragments, they're called helmet cells or schistocytes. Um, and at 40X, I would generally say, uh, if you're seeing, or at 100X, which is what this is under oil, if you're seeing about 10 or more schistocytes for high power field, you should be worried about um, uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with associated thrombocytopenia. So you can see very few platelets here. And so TTP, you guys might remember the classic PENTAD, the acronym, uh, not super appropriate from step one was, you know, fat RN, so fever, anemia, pharmacytopenia. But anemia, really, you're looking for these schistocytes, renal injury, and neurological changes. Um, so you send an ADMTS-13 activity, uh, generally less than 10. Now, again, if it's 11 versus 9, uh, I think that becomes really more detailed than most of us are interested in. And you can send the in inhibitor assay. These are sent out at a couple of institutions. So if you're remotely worried, the treatment is to start steroids and plasma exchange. Um, since the ADMTS-13 activity and inhibitor can be send out tests, what you can use is a plasma score. It's pretty well validated. Again, MedCalc is your friend. You can put the score in there and it helps you sort of assess the risk for whether this patient truly has TTP or not. has a pretty good negative predictive value. Okay. Um, within that spectrum of microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, remember we worry about um, whether you have a classical HUS, generally seen in pediatric populations, uh, sugar toxin, E. coli associated, um, or you have more of a TTP or an atypical HUS. Um, Given the, the limitations of time, I'm really not going to dwell a long time talking about atypical HUS. And here they use a cutoff of greater than five. I just told you that if it's less than 10, it's likely TTP. Those cutoffs are pretty hotly debated in the hematologic literature. So I'm, we're not going to go into that. But if you have atypical HUS, as you guys are probably well familiar, we can treat that sometimes uh, with a complement uh, antibody echolizumab. But regardless, upfront, 
no one would fault you for treating any or all of these diseases with plexosteroids. So you are now continuing on with that case. You decide to proceed with plex. You get consent uh, for the placement of an apheresis catheter. Uh, on recheck, these are your labs. Um, platelets are seven, INR is 1.3, APTT 29 seconds. So what's the next best step? Because you have to place that apheresis catheter. Just proceed with a micropuncture kit, um, give FFP, proceed with the line placement after that, give platelets or give both. Thoughts? We'll see an answer. Um, I see A. So A is reasonable, um, you know, and you don't even have to use micropuncture. The one thing that I would say, um, A, go for it. Yeah, Alex, that sounds reasonable and ha have done that many a times. But I think if you have the luxury of time, it is reasonable to give the patient FFP. The reason is, remember, they don't have ADMTS 13 activities. You could actually give them some FFP, and that would actually help with the risk of bleeding. Um, so if you have the luxury of time, FFP is a very reasonable, kind, helpful thing to do. Definitely don't give them platelets. So in TTP and actually in HIT, the data for HIT are not as strong, but in TTP in particular, giving platelets increases rates of thrombosis and mortality. And that's because you're sort of feeding the disease, right? It's a disease of, plat uh, of platelet consumption and destruction and giving more platelets causes problems. So you generally don't wanna give platelets. You could give FFP if you wanna go for it. I can't fault you for that either. Um, any questions on that? Okay. Moving on to the next case. Um, we just have 10 minutes left. So I'm gonna try to get through this pretty quickly. So this is a patient now with a myeloproliferative neoplasm, polycythemia vera, who came in with swelling in his arm and a platelet count of 2,500,000, so essentially 2.5 million. Um, so the ED is concerned that the swelling is due to an arterial clot resultant in compartment syndrome. They want to start aspirin heparin while we're waiting for imaging. Um, by the way that I phrased this, I guess you guys are aware this is not a good idea. And any thoughts on why this would not be a good idea, guys? So once your platelets get above 800 or 900,000, um, it's actually a high risk of bleeding and not clotting because your platelets end up sequestering your von Willebrand factor. So you're actually at a very high risk of bleeding rather than clotting. Um, so this patient was actually bleeding into his arms and needed uh, treatment for his acquired von Willebrand and his high platelets with platelet pheresis rather than anticoagulation. So thrombocytosis is generally greater than 450. Most of the time it's reactive, right? And rarely is it re related to an underlying marrow disorder. Um, so when do you treat? It really depends on the symptoms of the patient. As I mentioned, once you get above 800, 900, I really worry about an acquired von Willebrand and risk of bleeding. Um, so I generally take them off their antiplatelet therapy once they get to that number. Any questions about thrombocytosis? Okay, move on to the next case. Um, so this is a 30-year-old man, has a history of hemoglobin SS disease. He's on hydrea. He came into the medicine service with community-acquired pneumonia. You receive a call overnight that his oxygen requirement has increased from two liters to six liters. Any thoughts on what you guys should do next? Okay, in the interest of time, I'm gonna speed this along. Um, so this gentleman has acute chest syndrome. Um, so fever, infiltrate on chest x-ray and respiratory symptoms. Um, the fever, some people argue you don't always have to have it. Um, I'm not gonna go into details of that, but generally if you meet those criteria, um, you should be worried that your sickle cell patient has acute chest. Um, and that's a leading cause of death for patients with sickle cell disease. Um, 
people talk about the severity, they use sort of the similar um, ARDS scores um, for degree of hypoxia as the extent of ACS that you have. And once you get to moderate or severe, really you should be thinking about simple blood transfusions versus exchange. So the goal again is to get your hemoglobin S or your sickle fraction down to 30%. So this gentleman who has hemoglobin SS and is taking hydrea, maybe he has some hemoglobin F, but his S fraction is going to be very high. So you're trying to get that hemoglobin S fraction down with transfusion. Um, so you can start with simple, um, but if they have iron overload, you know, or if you're worried um, that it's they're quite sick, it might be reasonable to do an exchange because now if you've given the simple, when you exchange, you're actually wasting even the simple that you've given, if that makes sense. So indications for red blood cell transfusion or exchange in sickle cell like food, acute stroke, 